HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Amanda Smeltz, head sommelier at Balud Sud and Bar Balud in New York City. We'll talk to Amanda about wine lists, what we should be drinking now, and some underappreciated wine regions and styles. We'll also taste a Riesling from Germany on the weekly wine sip. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, before I get into Amanda's intro, I want to read you a little something. Tonight, I am too stupid to write a poem. (laughs) Who knows what poetry is? I know. My voice is too pronounced. My pronoun is a needless gnome. I fall asleep in the spelling quiz and sink to the shipwrecks in fathoms below. On the Titanic, mosses grow. The moon has been renounced and burning tigers pounce. Right Right off off the the Golden Golden Gate. Gate. (laughs) Your poetry must obfuscate or end up middle brow. Madonna says, take a bow. That's a really weird thing to have somebody do to you, Sam. (laughs) That is part of a poem, Crown for a Natural Disaster. It goes on by our guest, Amanda Smeltz. Amanda not only has a deep passion for wine, but she's a published poet. 
and I know that's a passion of hers. Amanda Smeltz is the head sommelier of wine bar Bar Balud and restaurant Balud Sued near Lincoln Center, New York City, part of the Daniel Balud Dynex Group. Welcome to the Grape Nation. Thanks, Sam. Amanda. <laughs> Did I pick a good poem? or That's one of my favorites I've ever, is I've it ever really? written, actually. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's Thank why you. I picked it. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, didn't, I would have read the whole thing. Cause the it's a context, long one. <laughs> it's a long one, but, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. So I ask all my guests to tell us about your journey in life mm-hmm. and in wine on how you got to where you are today, which right now is at the Baloods. Yeah. So without going too long or whatever, because I think you have a colorful background and it'll give us some context as we get into stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, in some ways, I think my journey into wine has been a pretty, um, it's representative because I studied the humanities and the liberal arts. And, you know, I I picked up a a joke from a philosophy friend of mine who said, you know, when you study the humanities, the work is always pro bono. So you have to find a way to, you know, you become your own patron. um, If you practice, get a job. Yeah, you have to have a job. Right. And so. Um, I worked in restaurants since I was a kid. I started working in small, like mom and pop restaurants when I was 14. And uh, you grew up where? Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, so just like a little kind of like dairy farm type restaurants, you know. And then when I was in college, uh, I had a very intelligent and sort of food knowledgeable roommate who started to teach me how to cook and. I was, like, fascinated by her. She knew people like, you know, Julia Child from the time she was little. And she was like, you know, you really should try fine dining. She's like, if you're curious about this stuff, you already work in restaurants. Just make, you know, make the hop. So I did. Um, And I was studying philosophy in undergrad at the time. And um, I got really lucky. I started working at a fine dining restaurant where the GM um, had opened Gramercy Tavern. Wow. Yeah, he was on the opening staff there. And he was not only the GM, but the, you know, wine buyer and... He was like, Who was it? His name was Peter Donahue. And did he stay on for a while at the beginning? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, I think, their first technical wine buyer sommelier. You know? right. So he, he remembers when Paul Greco got hired and kind of all, what you know, he's really close with Tom Calicchio. And right. so I got really lucky by accident to have this mentor who was, you know, Gramercy, like, OG. Um, and he said, you know, you seem bored, kid, and you're smart. Like, here, learn a thing. You know, and I said, okay, because I, you know. He he recognized that I'm the kind of person where if you're, I'm not given enough to learn or to do, I get I get restless and troublesome. So so he started to teach me wine. Um, nice. Yeah, and and it just became it became something. He said this remarkable thing that has always stayed with me that wine is anthropology, and so it's become this lens through which I get to look at all the stuff that I love anyway. And there's the added you know pleasure of being able to eat and drink. You know, so it's it's a good perspective. Yeah. Not everyone has that perspective. Yeah. So that leads you where? Uh, so it, it led me to New York, um, where I had always wanted to move anyway. And then I was um, beginning a graduate degree. So it, it totally made sense to kind of keep doing the wine thing as the way to pay the bills. And A grad degree to pursue your writing stuff? Yeah, exactly. So I got an MFA uh, at the New School in Manhattan for nice. in, in poetry. Yeah. And during that time, I was also working on kind of pushing the wine thing forward. So I started working at... Um, the Breslin uh, and the John Dory. April when, Bloomfield. Exactly. So I was working for April Bloomfield with Carla Rizuski, who became the wine director at those two restaurants. Carla I opened. is a good person She's to work under. so much fun. Um, we had a great time. And uh, so I worked with her for a couple of years. We'll um, talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. And then it, that's kind of, you know, it's gone on from there. So you, we broadcast our show live from Roberta's. Mm-hmm. You spent about four years. Uh-huh. 
at the wine program here, yes. and you just recently left. And in the intro, I said you're with the Daniel Balud group. You left the middle of last year mm -hmm. to go to Bar Balud. All right, so let's talk about the early days, Roberta's, and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. So I guess your influences early on were the guy, I forgot his name, from Donahue, Donahue mm -hmm. yeah. and Carla, Yeah. right? So what were those influences? I mean, what... What what did you take away from yeah. Carla after working side by side? Sure. With her? Well, it's it's kind of funny. I always say I feel a, a, like a deep sort of spiritual connection with Gramercy Tavern because all of the people who have been, you know, older than me or or mentors to me or you know people who have kind of guided me along have been kind of deeply tied to Gramercy. So both Paul Greco and Juliet Pope have also been, even though I've never worked for them, they've also been extremely um, encouraging and have provided a lot of counsel kind of over the years. And Carla. Carla worked for Paul Greco at Hearth for a brief stint. So through Carla, I also had this funny, you know, I became closer to Paul Greco as a result. So that means you have an affinity for Riesling. Yeah, well, we, it's, it becomes, it. it's a heritage thing. Paul Greco is one of the great <laughs> sommelier cheerleaders for Riesling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and working with Carla was, um, so, so Peter gave me my whole um, kind of, service perspective and I learned essentially the Gramercy model of service and which is it, the best we, I I think so still it's yep. just so human and really like to, employee first yep. happy employee yep. brings a happy customer and he and I also learned and this is great for me because it's something I cherish that the spirit of education in restaurants is something I think that's deeply it's deeply changing this industry and it's also opening wine up to a completely new world of people who otherwise would have been like, ah, it's just fussy. Like right. it's just for fancy rich people, you know? Right. Um, That's not your view. No, not at all. You're an educator. And again, we'll talk about that. So you're working at the Breslin, you're working at John Dory, you're talking pork, pig to snout mm -hmm. and seafood. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's about as wide a variety oh, of uh, wine. You couldn't ask for a more fun gig as a Psalm really. Do you, are you pairing wines to the type of foods? Yeah, Because totally. some of the Breslin stuff was out there. It's intense. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the cool thing about what Carla got to do there, and then because of working on the, on the program along with her, was that with those two different restaurant concepts, you, she got to build two completely different wine lists. So the right. style of wines on the list were utterly different. And at the Dory, it was a ton of really cool white wine from all over and lots of cool champagne and bubbles. So that those are big, broad categories that I love. So I got, you know, it's oysters and it's raw seafood and it's, uh, you know, kind of really unique pairing stuff. And then at the Breslin, it's such hearty and intense and like meat driven food that you learn a lot about how to use wine to be able to do a whole pig trotter, you know? What what were predominant wines at Breslin? Were they Rhone wines? Were they big, heavy reds? It, it, big I reds, mean, what, big what reds was the were, feature there? Yeah, big reds were common, especially because that's what people would ask for. Right. You know, like a lot of people have it in their head. If you're eating heavy meat, you do heavy red. But we snuck a lot of stuff onto that list that actually makes for really well. yeah amazing pairings. Like I still have in my head one of my favorite pairings that we ever did there that was so kind of like mind-numbing, was April's Famous Trotter, which I'm like, you can't see it right now, but I'm holding up my forearm because it was quite literally that big. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, the whole foot the whole foot is still on the trotter, like all the knuckles and the gelatin and stuff inside the foot. The whole thing gets um, breaded and then pan-fried, and it's it's just giant. So what, what pairs well with that? A 1985 Vouv Clicquot Rosé. 
It was remarkable. Champagne basically remarkable. can go with anything. It's really incredible. And it was like it was the fact that it was aged and rosé and the things that it did with all that pig fat was pretty awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. So at some point you leave there. Mm-hmm. Why? Time to move on? Yeah, I had done a couple years with them and I you know, was antsy, so I spent a little time in San Francisco trotting around um, and came back after about six months. You didn't love the West Coast, huh? I didn't. <laughs> what was it about it? I try not to admit the, that too openly. The lifestyle, people... Um, no, no, no. I, I mean, San Francisco is, it's visually stunning. It's a real city. It's one of the most beautiful places you could hope to ever see. But? But, um, you know, I was raised in the East Coast and I'm kind of a loud mouth and, you know, I I think that... <laughs> let's let's not go crazy here. Harrisburg is on the East Coast, but, yeah. but you spent a lot of time in New York. Go ahead. Yeah. I just took a shot at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, I mean, it, it's like if you're from the Mid-Atlantic at, at right. large, I think... I'm joking. You know, the, the Bay Area of California is So a you come back thing. from San Fran. Yeah. And then what happens? Um, so a really good buddy of mine was the chef de cuisine here at Roberta's at the time. And, um, you know, I, I was... What year are we talking? 2012. So things are going here. Yeah. They got yeah. it going then. Yeah. It was it was about a year or two after the, the famous Sam Sifton review of Roberta's had come out that just sort of blew the doors on this place right. wide open. And, and my buddy Maxie was in the kitchen at that time. And he said, Maxie hey, Sussman. Indeed. Whose brother Eli uh-huh. does a show here now. That's exactly right. And um, they have a pretty good uh, resume themselves, uh-huh. those guys. Yeah, yeah. totally. And, and good I, guys. Oh, uh, they're the sweetest dudes. I think what a great set of brothers. Um, and they also have an ab- adorable baby boy in their lives now, too. Anyway, um, so Max was in the kitchen and uh, it had found out that I got back to town and was like, hey, we're, you know, we're still looking for a wine director here because the previous one had left and they had gone without one for six or nine months or so. So I said, well, you know, he's like, do you want me to put you in touch with our GM? I said, yeah. And I loved their GM right away and, and was like, this is it. This, so you came on to here in 2012. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you get here. There was you said there was nobody here for months. Yeah, that's right. So what state is the wine program? Uh-huh. In? And then I know a lot happened. Uh-huh. You know where'd you take it? So sure. What I mean, state? Any, and any, then any restaurant that doesn't have a wine director in place for nine months or whatever, it's going to be. You know, they're just there was reordering. Like a, and yeah, that. there was a whole cellar of stuff that I had to kind of go in there and be like, "What is all this?" You know, and that, and that's common. I think that's a common thing that happens. So um, how how evolved? Even though there was no attention paid to it, how evolved was the list? Well, the previous woman who was here, a woman named Krista, had built a really, I think, handsome little Italian list, and it was full of kind of unique grape varieties and stuff. Um, but I just had it in my head that you could that you could totally blow the thing wide open. So if you, wanted you to. were open to blowing it open. Mm-hmm. So what changes? Well, I started. I started slowly. You know, I started. Um, slowly shifting the Italian selections and, and kind of diversifying those a little bit. And then, you know, I, I essentially, I told the guys, the owners up front, I was like, I don't think you should have an all Italian wine list. And they were like, why? You know? And I was like, because this isn't an Italian restaurant. I'm like, yeah, you know, pizza is the linchpin, but you, you guys are cooking like new California food. You know what I mean? You're, it's like Alice Waters riffs in here and heritage meat and like all, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, you've, you've got background from all over, you do pasta incredibly well, but like there's all this other stuff going on. So it's like you should have wine from all over the world here. Like this is an American restaurant. So that played in big, but also yeah. the environment here. Totally, I it's, mean this it, yeah. is a unique place. Yeah, it's so you also want to be 
different and hip too. Sure. Like, let's take some shots here. For sure. Well, and that, I think I, it wasn't in my head clearly at first, but I knew that. Like, I, the reason I was so happy to be in this restaurant was that if, it's such a pirate ship. It's just like, it's like ramshackle, but you know, as you know, it's a pirate ship. And I loved that. I was like, well, you know, what does it look like when you do wine on a pirate ship, you know? And it, right. it just means like no, no rules, you know, no holds barred. And it means like Carrie thinks people don't know what they are and, and play. So you did know? they become supportive in letting you make the changes yes. and giving you some capital to make the purchases? Totally, totally. So what were the immediate shifts? The wine list was predominantly Italian. Mm-hmm. You started taking it to what places? The states first. So um, you went domestic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And then and then slowly started to build. You know, part part of it was having to educate the staff, and that that for me was like a big deal. It was you know if you're gonna if you're going to add a brand a brand new massive program into a restaurant, you need to give people the tools to understand what the hell you're doing. So you, I guess now's a good time to bring it up. You mm-hmm. you started like a staff wine class. Mm-hmm. Where you would sit people down mm-hmm. and focus them on what you were doing and what was going on. Yeah, exactly. And that was the education part that you liked. Yeah. So you were able to educate, sort of get the wines out. Yeah, there. I mean, you have to fight with staff first. First, you have to convince them they that don't it's actually give a crap. Yeah, of course, no one, no one does until they do. You know what I mean? Like right. you, you're just irritated that you're being dragged to a training, right? And uh, that it's being made mandatory once a month, and and you know it's like having to go to the dentist or pay taxes at first, and then and then you understand that you're being given, um, you're being given a little gift. You know that's like there. You walk into a liquor store, you have no idea what any of this stuff is, but you want to drink something, and you have to randomly pick a thing off the shelf with really having no way to discern whether or not it's going to be any good. And sometimes you get lucky, and it's good, and other times you're just like, mm, kind of like taste a book. Yeah, you know, you it like, not tasted like nothing. And people go by the cover or the label, which is bullshit. Well, it's a terrible idea, right? So, you, you know, you end up kind of spending your money at random, and you don't really get to drink anything that great unless you get lucky. So it's it's like, listen, I'm here teaching you because I want this wine program to have articulate people on it right but also i'm giving you a gift like you can now go to a restaurant or to a liquor store and actually maybe take a stab at something and eventually people turn on to that and they're like oh this is actually kind of cool you know and and i think a lot of people don't know how many um how much like storytelling there is in wine and how much history there is and that that catches people the amount of history and storytelling is amazing it's how much you want to you know, uh, how much you're interested? About, yeah, they're interested in all that. So at some point, people start paying attention, mm-hmm. gets traction. You could see your people are on the floor, you yeah. know, telling stories yeah. and all it, that. It's man, that is like one of the central pleasures I think in what wine and restaurants can do is when you see people who work there enjoying their job. That's right. just like the best feeling when you're like, oh, this doesn't have to be something I have to do. This is suddenly something I take ownership of. And it brings me like the feeling of pride where people will come up to you and be like, smelts, you're never going to guess what I just sold. And I'm like, ah, you know, it's killer. Like you have back right. waiters selling dessert wine and stuff. And it just feels great. Right. Know? They know what they're doing yeah. and they feel good about it. What um, at a place like this, it's a hip place. Checks are not cheap, but they're not crazy. Mm-hmm. I guess your goal is affordability to some extent. You yeah, can't sure. go too crazy. Totally. And I guess in your mind, you want to make accessible to what you think works and introduce mm-hmm. people. 
Is mm-hmm. that what you did? Yeah, I mean, I, I had uh, so I had a couple things in balance. It's definitely affordability. You know, like you can't a lot of a lot of young people eat here too, yes. and and I think a lot of people kind of from all over the country of, and New York. A and, lot of Europeans. Yep, that too. Um, who are unaccustomed to seeing restaurant a lot wine of markup? Manhattanites, Brooklynites that it's, have the means, and yep. then people that are exploring a great, you know, meal and all of that. Totally. So I, my aim after a while and after watching sales and stuff was like, okay, fifty dollars is the median. So that means you know, write write the list on a bell curve. Don't have you can't have three hundred dollar bottles on this list. There's no there's no point. I mean, you can, but they're not going to move that fast. And everyone's buying between, you know, 45 to $75 bottles that of wine. That was a sweet spot. So that's where you go. And, and there's so much wine at that price point that can be had that's remarkable. Like, not even just, like, good, but really remarkable. Even when you said you shifted to domestic? Because mm-hmm. U.S. domestic, I know there's a lot of good wine out there for good prices. but I It guess can be expensive. I guess people think all the Napa stuff right. and Sonoma could be overpriced. But I'd, you find... Yeah, it's like you carry wines from Mendocino and uh, and the Central Coast right. instead of Napa, and that's right. how you keep you, them affordable. You pick the guys that know what they're doing. Yep. We'll talk about specific, specific stuff there, because mm-hmm. I, I really want you to sort of enlighten us on all that. All right, so you do that for four years. At some point, mm-hmm. you get into a real stride. You got the wines on the shelf that you want. You got mm-hmm. your people educated, the wines pairing well mm-hmm. with all of that. You decide, for whatever reasons, it's time to leave. Yep. That was last year, middle of the year, yep. and you have an opportunity, an interesting transition <laughs> to go from the pirate ship. How do we, right. The, <laughs> I was going to say, how do we describe it? The pirate ships <laughs> to really, you know, one of the meccas of fine dining as far as brand name, owner, you know, that place. Yeah, Empire. You go to totally. Dine, Empire, you go to Dinex. Which is Daniel Balud's group. He opened a couple of cool places by Lincoln Center, Balud Sud and Bar Balud and Epicurie Balud. Um, so one's sort of a Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. The other is a bar with similar food. Mm-hmm. So now you get there. I'm talking too much. You get there because <laughs> I want to hear from you. And you make this transition. Yeah. So tell me why you went there. Let's talk about the transition mm-hmm. and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So um, everyone, everyone's always really curious about the culture shock. <laughs> I was prepared for it. I, I was prepared for it. But um, you as, can't see what Amanda's wearing. Uh, but that, <laughs> she can't wear. She could wear what she's wearing today here to work, but she can't Not go to balloon yeah. suit with that. <laughs> yeah. I had to I had to take off my suit jacket things when I got in here. There you go. Um, Anyway, uh, so part of it was that, you know, when I was here at Roberta's and at Blanca, I was the only one. Like, I had a team of sommeliers who were working under under me who were, like, my pride and joy, and I loved working with them. But there was nobody here to teach me. Um, I had kind of, you know, hit a little bit of a, a wall in terms of growth and development. And Everybody learns and grows. Yeah. You and, um, I, I, you know, this is the first time, essentially, that I have ever been at a restaurant group that has multiple wine directors. You know what I mean? Like, Daniel Jonas, obviously, is the corporate wine director, but... There are several restaurants in New York City in this restaurant group that have other head sommeliers doing, you know, their own programs. And I essentially I didn't have peers. You know, I've had peers in the industry and but at work, um, you know, like colleagues along those lines. And there were some things that I really wanted to learn and get better at, you know, like one of the. So are you saying because of the other restaurants, Mm -hmm. they all were staffed with sommeliers? You were saying it it excited you. Yeah. 
to know that Raj was at Danielle totally. and whoever. Eduard at it, Cafe. It was and, a great yeah, totally. sort of brotherhood, which you knew you could tap into. Yep. And, and I also was thinking a lot about, you know, what are the things in the wine world that I don't, that I'm not experienced enough in, you know? And what, when you shift away from fine dining, you get to do a whole bunch of avant-garde and fun and really playful stuff. But when you shift back into fine dining, you essentially gain access again to super classical wine and really, and really traditional wine and and you know there were some intellectual things that I kind of wanted to to test myself with and yeah I don't know I it, part of it also is a native impulse that I have to throw shit at the wall and see what sticks so well you let's, know let's talk about that cuz you get there and there's a certain wine program that mm-hmm. exists i would say it's french centric very you oh, know yeah, very. burgundy rhones totally. and all of that and that makes sense and yep. you keep that there but you get in there and it's kind of your gig and you want to start tweaking stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're going from hipster cool to sort of mainstream state. Mm-hmm. You got to stay in the game, but you want to do your thing. So what, what are the things you're doing You know, when you get there? <laughs> Subterfuge. Um, <laughs> no, I, no, it's like, so this, so this is what it is. Um, you know, I got, I became uh, relatively known here for this whole natural wine thing. and uh, Which we're going to talk about yep. later because that's huge. Yep, it is. And um, the deal is, is that I know that the means of production that make really great natural wine are also present in some of those very classical places. Like you, lear- you learn it from certain right. Burgundians and you learn it from certain Rhone farmers. and. I know that. Not a lot of people know that, right? So you mean they've been doing it as a practice, totally. Without the good ones, the good ones. and touting the good ones. This, you know, we're biodynamic, we're organic, right. whatever. And, without and and you know, on the flip side, there are also lots of people in those classical regions who farm like crap. And you know, so what I what I wanted was to be like, okay, you know, some of these big names some of these icons should stay because Michael built that stuff here and there's no reason for you to take it down at all. Um, but what about all these other little guys? What about all these other like small independent wineries that are in maybe lesser known appellations that represent amazing value who are doing great farming? What about these like, what about even these little guys in Burgundy that no one's ever heard of who are doing remarkable things in their cellar because they're young or they're, you know, I think, you know, I know the Burgundians sometimes like, look down their nose a little bit at say the well, I young Negoses. I was going to ask you that. I mean, there's a clientele there mm-hmm. that goes to that restaurant and is used to names, you know, names in that list. Yep. Are they open to trying other stuff or yeah. you kind of identify a younger customer and say, you want to try this? Well, it's like, it's a sliding scale, right? So some, so some people who are used to drinking only Louis Jadot, like very famous kind of mainstream Burgundy or whatever. Um, those, you don't f with that guy. You don't screw with it too much. Like you, you still let them have Burgundy, but maybe you like nudge them to try a younger Slips producer, up. right? Finesse. Yeah, it, you know. And then if you've got people who seem really open from the moment you sit down, you let them drink natural wine from Bergenland in Austria, right? You know what I mean? So it's even it, a place like that, the clientele isn't look down your nose Burgundy only. No, no, no. Yeah. It's diverse. It's diverse. When I go in there, I'd love to drink Burgundy, but I'm not interested. I want to try other stuff. Yeah, it's diverse. You know, I'm the perfect guy for you. Yep. And well, and I think one of the things that's been a pleasure to find and has has been sort of a surprise is to see that even on the Upper West Side, you, you sometimes you get people walking in the door who are like, 
what's this all about? And you're like, really? You're curious about that? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, it's an unfiltered, hazy looking, you know, Rio from Sicily. How do you feel? And they're like, let's try it. I'm like, okay. You know, so you, you just, if you keep an open mind, you find that there are others who will and too. You- you know? Try to read too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you it know, requires you, you, finesse. You know. Yeah, it requires finesse. <laughs> um, did you continue Michael's Big Bottle program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How every come night? I don't get the email anymore? <laughs> did you stop emailing people? No, no, no. I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to finesse Mikey's email list. He's got, I've got oh, so many. I haven't got, I got one when you got there, and <laughs> yeah. I haven't got one since. So yeah. You better and, get no, on we'll that. No, we'll pick that thread back up. Did you? When you said you came to Roberta's, one of the things you added was domestic wines. Did you carry that over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. To Bar Balut and yeah. Balut's. What did you bring? You know, there's a place where you could bring in more expensive wines. Yeah, totally. What type of stuff did you bring in domestic-wise? Well, I think one of the things I really want people on the Upper West to see, because they really do drink a lot of domestic wine, but they drink the same the same stuff over and over again. It's it's Napa Cab, Napa Chardonnay. It's uh, Camus Insignia. It's, yeah, it's blah, really blah, blah. like name like name check and name recognition, and I just want them to see like the Columbia Gorge, you know, which it, it, just like just see how diverse it is and see and see how vibrant winemaking in this country is right now. I, I it's I get so excited, you know, because there's just it's proliferating in this really remarkable way. So. You know, getting them outside of drinking, like just saying, I want Cabernet or I want Pinot Noir or I want Chardonnay, and that's it. So, are you? How long have you been there? It's been less than a year, right? Yeah, it's I guess like eight months now. Are you near settled into where you want to be with their list and the changes you want to make? I think so. I mean, those things take time. Yeah, right. Like I, oh, it, they'll it'll always be ongoing. Yeah, it's a but moving target. The changes are working and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. I think so. Great. Uh, it, those people should be exposed to that. Um, so I want to talk to you. It's a good segue. I want to talk to you about certain types of wines. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll jump ahead to natural wines. Mm-hmm. I mean, since I've done this show, the natural wine movement has been very prominent and prolific. But for the first time, the raw wine fair came to Brooklyn. Did you go? I did go. It's cool. And my head was spinning. I know. It was there a was, lot of people. For a room. guy who knew a little <laughs> and wants to know a lot, you know, I couldn't take it in. Sure. So natural wines is something that you supported, introduced, continued to show here at Roberta's mm-hmm. and at Bar Balut and Balut Sud, right? Mm-hmm. What, when you're at a fancier restaurant with bigger chips, checks does it change the type of natural wines i mean do you do pet nats do you do orange wines yes do you fewer. take it and not fewer. yes you do but fewer, fewer. <laughs> yeah i mean you you know i want people to be able to see you know really great expressions of unique or to call them avant-garde styles but i also don't mean to force it down anyone's throat right right so it's like i'm totally happy to to get you know Raphael Barres champagne in your glass, like really, which is expensive, but also beautiful. I'm totally happy to do that version of natural wine, or I'm happy to do the pet nat from Santa Barbara that's got two inches of lees in it, but tastes like salt and rocks and is so great. You know, Uh, all of that is, I'm I'm very Catholic in my approach that way. You know, Um, the only thing that's anathema to me is when the stuff is stripped raw with chemicals. And whether that happens in the vineyard or in the cellar, that's the stuff where when I hear people say, and I hear this all the time, all white wine tastes the same. The reason all white wine... All natural white wine? No, just, just all when, I, white when wine. people say to me, yeah, in conversation, right. they're like, I don't know, whatever. Just give me a red or give me a white. Like, those are the two big categories. 
it all tastes the same. The reason people have that in their heads is because they've only ever been exposed to stuff that's made commercially. Right. You know, they, they, it's you've been drinking grocery store wine, right. and there's nothing wrong with that because look, that's how everybody comes to it, right? Like, but there's a bigger world out there. There's a huge world out there of people who are tending their land in a really thoughtful way and who are exceedingly talented in the cellar. You know, and that that is a different class of beverage. It's no so longer what's, just drink. You know, how do you def- natural wine is a big sort of label nebulous pattern. term. Yeah. How do you how do you define it? And it's not about you being accurate to what the definition is. What's your interpretation yeah. of you know natural yeah, wine? Sure. I mean, um, I like I like the way that uh, Miss Lepeltier puts it in the opening page of her new wine list at, at Rouge. She's she, coming on in a couple of weeks. She's so great. Um, I know everyone's a fangirl, but I'm I'm just going to put it out there, Pasco, if you're listening. I'm a huge fangirl. Um, <laughs> No, it, she, you know, she has a really nice way of kind of plainly describing it. There's organic farming where there's, right. you know, no chemicals used in the vineyard. That's a great step one for me, you know. Um, don't strip the nutrients out of the land. Then there are other there are other dimensions and practices that come up, you know, where whether it's a, a really careful eye to sort of eco-diversity in your vineyards, which is where you're letting other animals live there, you're letting other things grow, you're finding what works for the, the vines in terms of their their health, and, and sometimes that means discovering that letting other stuff be there is really important. Um, you know, and all those farming practices are, are a little bit more holistic, a little bit more... Um, Sensitive, maybe, and they're not on the industrial model, and that's and, the really important part to me. And you had mentioned earlier that there have been wineries and winemakers that have done nothing but that. Totally, that's the way you know they function. There's totally. even that whole Rudolf Steiner biodynamic, you know, which is another natural form of growing wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is wines, natural wines, on the list at uh, Balut Sud and Bar Balut. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if you're up there, ask Amanda. Mm-hmm. Don't drink that uh, white wine. <laughs> um, talk to me about some lesser-known regions, uh, some producers that are making great wines. This is where you could drop a little knowledge yeah. on my audience. Yeah. Um, give me regions. Give me winemakers. Um, what comes to mind? You don't have to overload. I mean, if a few things come out, I'll be very happy. Okay, I'm going to give you some of my favorites. Go, get, do regions, then okay. do winemakers. Southern Southern Spain, everyone okay. should be drinking sherry. Everybody, sherry. everybody, everybody. And that's, and that's really funny because it's not necessarily natural wine. But. So you're the first person who's advocating sherry since I've done the show, and I've had some good people. So sherry is... Sherry is uh, essentially... Not the sweet stuff that your grandmothers kept in their weird cabinet in the weird crystal decanter. So right. that's the first thing. Right. That is it's one, not port. It's not port. It is a fortified white wine that goes through an oxidative barrel aging process, um, usually in systems of barrels called soleras, where there's a lot of blending that happens. Um, so it's got some resonances. It looks a little bit similar to things that happen in whiskey production and also things that sometimes happen in champagne production, which also happen to be two broad, very favorite categories of mine. So um, I always tell people that sherry, whether it's the really light, dry styles or the really dark, rich styles, is a great white wine for whiskey drinkers because it's got barrel notes. It's got some oxidative notes. It's got a little bit of extra booze. So if you like them hot, that's got it's got that too. Is it a too. food wine or it's more of a sipping? It both, both, both. So the darker style. Give me a natural pairing. You know, muscadet oysters, totally. sherry, fino, what? I, fino and crudo. 
Kudo. You go to a sushi restaurant with a bottle of Fino, you're going to be delighted. All right, so sherry is a great tip. What kind of give me give me the middle to lower end? What kind of price point are we talking about? And give me a maker or two. Sure. Um, and go by availability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, some of some of my favorites that are really, I mean, the amazing thing about sherry is that it's from a part of Spain where the economics are kind of roughed up, so they they sell it for way less than what the wine so it's is a worth. Great value. It's a great value. You can buy excellent Fino and Manzanilla for like nothing. It's as it's as cheap as drinking beer. So that's my, another really big like point about it. Don't drink Budweiser, drink Manzanilla. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or drink Budweiser but you know chase it with Manzanilla or whatever. Right. Um, some of my favorite producers are um, Maestro La Sierra. Um, spell the maestro. No, don't spell maestro. Yeah. Maestro who? La Sierra. So C uh, S I E R A. Those wines are La outstanding. Sierra. Okay. Um, Hidalgo La Gitana. Um, Hidalgo La Gitana. Carlos like, Santana. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, no, spell that for me. Woman. <laughs> spell that for me. La Gitana is L A and then G I T A N A. Hidalgo La Gitana. Gitana yeah. Right. Um, those are those are pretty widely available. Are great. So um, good wine store, New York. Yep. Yep. Yeah. If you're in a, if you're in a major city, they probably have a little dusty shelf somewhere in the back right. that's got a Montiato hiding Ain't out on it, off the and shelf. you should totally go buy all of it. All right. Give me an. So I love that because I think that's interesting. Give me another region you love, and give me some wines and a winemaker. Okay. I love Germany. Okay. I, I love German wine. Um, I like the big famous region of the Mosul very much, but I also like a lot of the less like lesser known regions in Germany. Name two or three: Baden, um, the Rheinhessen, and the Rheingau. Let's say, right. which is funny because historically Rheingau is starting little, to come up. Uh, yeah, and historically the Rheingau was like an aristocratic place for wine. We're going to taste a Riesling for our weekly wine sip. Cool. All right, so Germany Rieslings, mm-hmm. and those. There's the whole range. There's mm-hmm. some great cheaper stuff, yep. and you know, there's a real art like Donhoff to some really famous guys. Yep. All right, give me one more. Give me one more region. Uh, let's say Sicily. Sicily. Yep. Let's say especially Etna. Um, other places too, but especially Etna. The predominant grape is uh, for reds, Norella Mascalese. Um, which is an indigenous variety that is just from that place. What's the characteristic of that grape? Big? Well, uh, it depends on how you make it. Um, I, I think it's more like a Grenache or a Pinot Noir, uh, where it's really about like fineness um, and not so much about mass, like massive weight. But you can, depending on how you handle it, you can push it into big, broad territory too. So they can be they range from like medium to full. I'd say. Cool. Yeah. Um, and. Sicily tends to produce wines that are a good value. Mm-hmm. And that's the same same thing, kind of ec- economically struggling. So what that means is they sell really right. high-quality stuff right. for you know, lower prices. So let's, let's review. We have sherry, mm-hmm. we have German wines, and we have Sicilian wines. Those that's, are that's a nice meal to me. Three <laughs> great directions and something we don't always hear about. Amanda, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to subject you to our wine list, which is a bunch of questions. Cool. You can help us with that. And then I'm going to make you drink some wine for our wine sip. The worst. We're going to evaluate it. And then we're going to wrap up and we're out of here in a little while. So you're listening to The Grape Nation. We're talking to Amanda Smeltz. We'll be back in a few uh, seconds or minutes. 
Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Amanda Smeltz. Amanda is the head sommelier at Barbalood and Balud Sud up by Lincoln Center in New York City. We are now going to subject Amanda to our wine list, and let's see what she's drinking. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? And I don't mean I just gave you some <laughs> in reason. The glass. <laughs> What's the stuff in the last week, couple of weeks that you keep drinking over and over or trying or liking now? Uh, well, I'm going to try not to be too trendy, but I can't help no, it. No, 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 no. Don't. There's no barrier here. Okay. So I, I was very fortunate. In May of last year, I got to go to Austria um, with a wine importer uh, to visit a couple producers there, and I got was very fortunate to get to visit this young couple um, in Bergenland uh, at a winery called Gutogau in the small village. That's Gutogau. the faces on the, the labels? That's the faces on the labels. That's a hot it, It's right a now. hot item, and it is funny because it, it, it... So it's Gutogau, O-G-G-A-U. It's available, not easy to find. It's yeah. in cool bars and yeah, restaurants. Yeah, 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 for sure. But um, they represent a sort of changing tide in the uh, production of Bergenland wine in Austria. Uh, and it's kind of cool because... It, they work with grape varieties that are native there. So, like, they've got Gruner Veltliner, maybe something you've heard of before. They've got Blaufrankisch, you know, the, the Those grape, are the two biggies Kind of big, in biggies Austria. in Austria, for sure. But they have all these other grape varieties that grow well there. And the wines are just remarkable. They are profoundly fresh, They and they feel, like, vibrating. They're natural, too. They were at they, the they Royal are, Wine Fair. I they, 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 they're, like, vibrating and energetic, right. you know, and, and they, they so just it's, it's Gut, G-U-T, Ogau, O-G-G-A-U. If you see them on a wine list or at a store, it's, grab yeah, one. Snap, I agree with Amanda. All right, you got to go a little quicker on your answers. Okay, here I go. Favorite, and I think you may have said this earlier, favorite wine and food pairing. Mm. I might say Girard wine and oysters. Okay. Uh, might, like a Sauvignon? Or? Yeah, yep. Or like or like Vangin and oysters. Okay. Incredible together. Okay. So that's sort of a, a lot of people say Muscadet and oysters, mm-hmm. Champagne. That That's a good choice. The Jura, J-U-R-A, is a region of France that's very hot right now, and they're making some terrific wines there, and they're great seafood wines. Mm-hmm. 
right, give me separate of where you work your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. You're not incriminating. We're playing favorites. Mm-hmm. What's a place where I this totally play favorites? <laughs> place that has a great list, great people. New York City or everywhere? New York, and then I'll take it everywhere okay. too. Okay, New You're- York City, Rouge Tomat, hands down. Okay, I agree with you. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting. She's the best. Yeah. The- and the food's terrific. Totally. I'll also uh, I'll also throw a second nod in there. Even though I don't get to Tribeca often, I think the terroir wine list is fantastic. That's Paul yep. Greco. Yeah. yeah. I think he's sort of the granddad. He's a guru. The, yeah, totally. he is the guru. All right. Now, you said just New York, so you have something outside of New York? Man, there are so many cool places to drink in this country and elsewhere now. It's Give me amazing. one. Um, Walrus and the Carpenter in Seattle. Okay. Great wine list All and right. delicious food. You want to throw me one more? Uh, sure. Where else do I love to drink? Um, let's say uh, upstate in Hudson. Um, That's a hot area. Like a, around the Restaurants brunette end. wine bar. Tiny, brunette? Brunette. Tiny, adorable, great list. So if you're traveling north to go skiing or you're going up to Rhinebeck or Saugerties or Woodstock, it's not far from there. Brunette mm-hmm. wine bar. All right. Favorite all-time wine? Oh, that is so hard. And <laughs> How if could you I can't cho- give me one, give me one or two. Favorite all-time wine. There's got to be something you drank that. Yeah, sure. Okay, there are two. Uh, one is a shout out to Mike Madrigal because I have him to thank for this. Okay. Because Noel Versailles in Champagne? Corn- uh, no. No, no. Uh, in Cornas. Cornas. In the Northern Rhone. I was lucky enough to open a, a 1998 Cornas of his a couple months back with one of my Psalms there. And it was really like hauntingly beautiful. So Noel Versailles, V E R S E T. That's. The Northern Rhone? Yeah, exactly. That's Cornas, which is a region. They make yeah, a type a of Cornas, St. Joseph. I'm surprised he didn't say a Gonan St. Joseph. Uh, Gonan's really good, yeah. Um, and what year did you say? 2000. Okay, and it was... It's spectacular. It racked you? Yeah, it, ju- it just has one... Of, it f- smells like a folk tale. <laughs> you know, you're like, Whatever that means. You know, I don't know, but it's how Whatever I felt. <laughs> All right, that's a good one. That, that's got a lot of... Um, passion behind it all right best wine under 15 bucks Mm -hmm. i need a red and a white i need the 15 retail and you got to dig on this okay uh best wine white is easy for me visor kunstler's entry-level riesling hands down every year so kunstler k-u-n-t-s-l-e-r k-u-n-s-t-l-e-r kunstler yep so visor is the first part of the name w-e-i-s-e-r yeah exactly visor kunstler their wines are beautiful so if you're going riesling and you're going in that price range you're going wine that's the play that's uh, i think they're superior perfect yep what about a red Mm, under 15 bones that's tough it's harder because red wines fetch higher prices um, I would go, honestly, maybe like, no, that's not true. Oh, um, on, there's you got to re- talk to me. Not I'm yourself. sorry. I'm in my brain. I'm in my own brain <laughs> right now. Um, it, honestly, in the Piedmont, you can get great value still. Um, you can, you can get like Barbera Dasti or Barbera Dalba for under right. that price point. If you get the right producer, those wines are gorgeous. I agree. Yeah. If you go to a good Italian restaurant, totally. you can get it on the list for not a lot of money. Totally. So you're looking at 15 to 20 bucks mm-hmm. for Piedmont wines, which is Northern Italy and Barbera D'Asti, A-S-T-I mm-hmm. and D'Alba. A-L-B-A. Yep. A-L-B-A. Look for those. All right. Those are good choices. All right. 
Do you have favorite psalms you love and admire? We mentioned Michael. Mm -hmm. I'll give you that. He's a friend. Mm -hmm. Pascaline. I'll give you that. So let's get out of those two. Who's out there that you admire that's doing it right? There is a a woman in Portland who I just think the end of the world of. Is that that walrus place? No, that's that's in Seattle. Um, Seattle. She just opened her own spot uh, called Dame in Portland. Um, and Her name is Dana Frank. And she, I just, her taste is so close to what I think is, she's just like got her finger on a pulse and her restaurant is beautiful. And, um, so I'm, her name is Dana, Dana Frank, Frank yeah, and I think the she's place is Dame, Dame, D-A-M-E yep. lady bar. <laughs> so if you're out there, that's somebody who knows wine is recommending somebody, uh, who knows wine too. All right, so you did an admirable job on our wine list. Okay. We're very good. All right, we're going to move to our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste the 2015 Nick Weiss St. Urban's Hoff Riesling. It's a state bottled from old vines, and it's from the Moselle region of Germany. The wine retails for about 15 to 17 bucks. And it's readily available in better wine stores. Normally, I ask our guests, tell me a little more about this. But when I showed Amanda the wine, she (laughs) she goes, what is that? He stumped me. So the good news is we're going to taste this wine together on the air. And we're going to see if we like it or not. So let's start with color. Is that a typical... Riesling, lighter, darker? Yeah, it's right in strike zone. It's, okay. uh, it's got like a little bit of a yellowy tinge right. to it, uh, you know, which shows a touch of ripeness. Okay. Uh, but Let's go nose. Yep. Were you going to say something else? No. Oh. no uh, smells like flowers, which is good okay. because Riesling should always have some kind of floral, floral note. Yep. Anything else on the nose? Honey, which is great too. A- another indicator of a little bit of ripeness. Yes. And then my favorite note. In Rieslings of all time, which is rock. It smells like a wet rock. So, minerality or rock? Is there yeah, a difference between? Same, but okay. in, in, I find that in Mosul Riesling, when they're good, it usually smells wet, which is really nice. A wet stone. Yep. Right, which definitely smells different than a stone that's been sitting in the sun. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. All right, so that's the nose. Mouthfeel, typical Riesling. Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it. Does it have the right. It is correct. <laughs> It's what like, about the acidity? It, it's good, and that's and that is really a key feature for me on Riesling. If it doesn't have acid, it's not doing the thing it's supposed to do. Now, a lot of people, you know, they... Riesling's sweet. <laughs> right. Riesling is sweet. <laughs> there are different levels of Riesling, all the way to a dessert wine that's very sweet. This is considered a dry Riesling. Is this dry? This is not a sweet... For a dry Riesling, this Bone is dry. not too... So it's a bone dry, which yep. is, you know, what we wanted, which is a good thing. All right, let's talk about the taste and the palate. What are we getting on that? Super tart, which is awesome, because that's what a lot of people don't expect. Um, the tartness and the acid kind of work together to make things, to make it feel, like, really refreshing. And then, even though the nose has got flowers and honey on it, instead it tastes like a lemon rind. And, and maybe with some, like, herbal, a little bit of herbs in there, too. So everything you're saying, is that sort of a classic profile for Riesling or for, restraining? For dry Riesling in the Mosul, yes. So it's, it's, it's yep. hitting inside the box, Totally, which is good. 
Um, give me some taste descriptors. Um, so, de- so definitely that lemon rind thing that you got. I also noticed how the tartness and the acid work together to kind of pucker your mouth a little yeah, bit. Yeah, there's a little pucker. Which means it's going to be great for food. It's going to kind of clean your palate so up. So that was my eating. next question. Yep. What's what's our good best pairing for this? Pork. Pork. Yeah. Yeah, I would go like Is pork that sausage, typical Riesling or, or this particular wine this, holds up? This one, I think, has got the right things, right? It's it's the same reason that we do like apples on pork dishes is really tradi- right. traditional. This that is the same deal. sweetness to offset. It, it's a little bit what of like acid. What kind of pork? Pork loin? I, I would do like pork sausage came to mind right away. because so sausage a, would be good. There's an it. herbal thing here that would Bratwurst, be awesome. Bratwurst. Totally. Sauce. Okay. Totally. Good cool. barbecue wine, actually. Like okay. Grilling out. It would hold up against mm-hmm. all that stuff. All right, so this is the 2015 Nick Weiss St. Urban's Hoff Riesling. Look at me, Uncle Sammy, turning Amanda onto a wine she never had before. He did it. She forgot what I know, and I just introduced her to a wine. Getting schooled. Um, do we like this wine? I just took another, another swig of it, so the answer is assuredly yes. Do we think yes. it's a good value yeah. for 15 17 yeah. bucks? Absolutely. I'd be very pleased with this if I spent 15 bones in a store and took this home. All right, so... One of the things we should learn from Amanda is that think a little out of the box. Sherry, she brought up. Riesling, we just tasted one, and it's a terrific food wine. It's got some nice characteristics um, and a few other wines. So that's the 2015 Nick Weiss St. Urban's Hof Riesling. I'm glad we liked it. All right, we're going to wrap up, Amanda. If you have a question, a wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, Twitter at Ben Ruby, and Instagram at S Ben Ruby. Finally, on our wine calendar, we have Riesling Fire. Fire, Fire? Yeah. Okay. Riesling Fire is the greatest celebration of German wine on earth. It's coming to New York City February 17th and 18th. Go to Riesling Fire, that's R-I-E-S-L-I-N-G, that's how you spell Riesling. One word, fire, which is German for fair, F-E-I-E-R.com. So it's Rieslingfire.com for more info on tastings, seminars, and dinners. And for the dinners, they bring in some of the best sommeliers in New York to serve and help. And Amanda was there and will be there this year. So if you have any interest in German wine, they have a walk-around tasting. They have a dinner, which there's still tickets available for, and there's still a few seminars open. I will just do a little plug for it. That dinner is one of the best BYO parties on the planet. Right. It is a BYO. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. All right. So we want to thank our guest, Amanda Smeltz, head sommelier at Bar Balud and Balud Sud. We want to thank our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. We'll see you next week. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.